This is Victorian Scribblers, an informal exploration of the lives of lesser-known Victorian writers. And I'm Courtney Floyd, a doctoral candidate in literature and print culture at the University of Oregon. Listeners, I'm here today with Anna Breck of the Mary Elizabeth Braddon Association to chat about all things Braddon, um, but particularly Braddon's legacy. So welcome, Anna. Hi. Do you want to um, tell us a little bit about yourself and your research? Uh, sure. I am uh, just finishing, hopefully uh, in February, my dissertation at the University of Rhode Island, and I'm working on representation of female characters, but just sort of gender uh, across the board in non-canonical, understudied fiction by women sort of after 1860. Uh, I'm particularly looking at the sort of sensation, uh, supernatural, and new woman fiction, but more heavily sensation and supernatural fiction. Mm, That sounds amazing. So do you work at all with uh, Marie Corelli then? I'm working with one of Corelli's short stories, um... The Withering of a Rose, Mm. which is late. I want to say it's 1897, maybe. Um, I could be totally wrong about that. Uh, That's the only thing I'm working with of hers right now. But um, I've read Sorrows of Satan and the the one with the out-of-body experience where you go into outer space. Shoot, I can't remember which one. Oh, um, uh... A Romance of Two Worlds. Romance of Two Worlds. I loved that one. Yes. Yeah. It was really interesting. She deals um with things you think are way more modern, but like um depression, especially in that novel, in a ways that I found really fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. The short story that I'm looking at uh, is also probably a portrait of um, maybe depression. Uh, the heroine is essentially in a bad marriage to an older man, and he's not abusive but he's emotionally neglectful and uh she really essentially dies out of um uh, sort of not being mentally stimulated by her surroundings as far as i can tell wow i i I get that feeling (laughs) it's important to feel interested in the world yeah anyway sorry to get sidetracked there how did you first learn about Braden? Um, yeah, I think like a lot of people, I was I didn't I'd never heard her name before, even though I came into my master's program thinking that I really was a Victorianist, uh, and I was assigned Lady Audley's Secret in an MA class on Victorian fiction, and it was one of those things where we got the reading list over the summer, and she was the only author on the list that I hadn't heard of. So I got my copy on Amazon and I read it on the beach uh, in uh, northern Wisconsin on Lake Michigan and just totally fell in love. I think I read it back, you know, twice. Like I finished reading it and then I reread it. Uh, And then I just sort of started looking into her work and her life. And, um, you know, you start hunting at that time. I guess this was 2009, maybe 2008. And... I went looking for more novels and the blurb on the back of the copy that I had, which was probably Oxford Classics, I think, 
said that she wrote around 60 novels and that they were all out of print. And, you know, now we know that that's like 90 novels and that doesn't include right. the short fiction and the plays and, um, and so many more of them are, are available. But when I first started looking, really the only place that I could find Radin was um, like Google Books. You know, I was looking at scans, essentially, in Project Gutenberg. Wow. That's amazing. I um I just stumbled on Braden by accident, which I think I've I've spoken about a little on the podcast before, but I was frantically trying to figure out like who to write about for my <laughs> master's thesis and um came across this book called Crime on Her Mind by Michelle B. Slung, in which um I think Braden's 1894 Thou Art the Man was mentioned. Yeah, I love that one. Um but I think it's so amazing that uh, she's reviving largely because people are mm-hmm. teaching her work and that more and more of us know about her because of that. Yeah, no, I think that's really true. And I think, I mean, we do owe a lot in terms of the resurgence of popularity. We owe a lot to um, the scholars who are working on her sort of and just working to recuperate um, sensation fiction in general in the late 1990s and early 2000s but she's also is she is she's showing up on more undergraduate syllabi which I think is probably a lot of grad students who are teaching her in their classes and she also in 2015 um, was added to the UK A-level syllabus so there are even younger students so sort of high school aged uh Students are being exposed to her in the UK now, which I think is great. Um, it's They put Lady Adderley's Secret on as one of the options for the Victorian novel in that. Um, I don't know a lot about how the, the A-levels work, but I know that she's being taught as part of that, that unit, which is really exciting. Yes, that is so exciting. She, as, as I hope, has be, um, become obvious in the last few episodes on Braddon. Her work is absolutely worth further study and uh, just even exploration if... if um, if listeners are not um, into research, she's still just a really enjoyable read, even by modern standards. Mm-hmm. No, I really agree with that. It's actually one of the goals of the Braddon Association is not just to, I mean, obviously we're engaging with Brad scholars and with Braddon scholarship, but we're also really interested in sort of public awareness that Braddon is, is an option. Um, you know, if you're someone who's interested in, not even Victorian fiction, but someone who's interested in romance or detective fiction or, um, you know, any sort of crime genres, mystery, suspense. She really appeals to readers who like those who like those genres. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So um, can you tell us a little bit? I feel like um, when we'd spoken before, you mentioned that you had been sort of um, a founding member of the Braddon Association. Is that true? Um, that is true. I, you know, Janine Hatter um, and I co-founded it, and it really just sort of came about. Um, we were at uh, one of the Victorian Popular Fiction Association conference um, receptions in, I want to say 2013, and we're sort of bemoaning the fact that there wasn't a Braddon Society uh, when Dickens has a society and Collins has a society. And we realized that we could just start one. So we did. That is amazing. Um, and so what are the, I mean, you've spoken a little bit about the goals of the society, but, um, or the association, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> That's okay. We couldn't decide when we were putting it together if it was going to be a society or an association, and we liked the acronym MEBA, so we went with the association. Yeah, that's, uh, it works really well. Um, 
So do you have long-term goals or things that you're hoping to um, do with the association in coming years that you could tell us about? Um, I feel bad saying this, but I'm not sure that we do. I, we sort of, um, you know, we started, luckily, I guess, just sort of by a, a trick of fate, right before Braden's, uh, the centenary of her death in 2015. Mm-hmm. So we were able to do several things sort of leading up to 2015. Um, Janine put together this really excellent exhibition on Braden for a public engagement lecture and study day at the University of Hull that happened in 2015. And there was the Braden Centenary Conference. Um, I organized a panel at Victorian's Institute that year. So we had sort of planned on doing a lot of things to celebrate her in that year. Uh, and then after that, we've mostly been um, looking towards more online engagement. Um, you've been running, you've, you've run one of our Twitter, our Twitter projects, which is the read along. Uh, you know, we've been trying to engage in that way. Uh, we're really always asking for people who want to contribute to our blog, which uh, is a mixture of scholarship and book reviews and conference proceedings. Um, Jennifer Fegley did this really cool series of um, posts where her students published their work on our blog, and then she wrote about the, what it was like to teach Braddon in a, it was an all Braddon um, graduate class. And so, like, we're really sort of open to anything that people want to bring to us, but in terms of long-term goals, uh, really raising awareness about Braddon and, and keeping her name, um, sort of keeping her name current is, is one of our main, our main goals. That's a great goal. Um, and I think really leads into my next question, which is, um, and this is maybe not a fair question in that it's uh, huge and um, I think maybe impossible to answer, but so why do you think, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the best kind of question, yeah. why, do you, why do you think scholars and um, modern readers have gravitated so much to Braddon? Like, why is it important to keep putting her name out there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, for me, I guess one of the reasons that I think she's so important is that uh, we had this very narrow... Um, we have this very narrow understanding of the Victorian novel, um, and it's based on, uh, this is actually part of, part of one of my dissertation chapters, but uh, we have this really sort of narrow picture of the Victorian novel that came from that uh, incorporation of Victorian fiction into studies of the novel in sort of like the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. And uh, the scholars who were interested in the form of the novel weren't super interested in Victorian fiction. Um, They were interested in the novel's history and its evolution and sort of formal aspects that continued over time. And so a lot of Victorian writers who were much more representative of the period than, say, George Eliot, who's wonderful and I love her, but, you know, she didn't have the same kind of readership. Um, she wasn't as popular as Brad and she didn't have the same kind of widespread appeal. Um, but so so those are the kinds of authors that kind of made it into what we considered the canon for a really long time. And I think that as we rediscover popular fiction, um, scholars are realizing that Braddon played an incredibly important role in what the Victorian novel looked like in the in the actual period um what read what people were actually reading what people were really interested in and it gives us a very different picture of um 
fiction from the time period. Yeah, that's such a good point. So a lot of people quote Henry James saying that, you know, Victorian novels are baggy monsters, but Braddon's work is so far from baggy. It's tightly paced, it's engaging, it's action-packed as far as Victorian literature is action-packed. That's absolutely true. And I mean, you know, the sensation novelists faced so much criticism for being plot-driven, um, but contemporary fiction is is plot driven not literary fiction you know but a lot of our better contemporary um mystery and and crime uh writers are are writing tightly plotted um very sort of uh nuanced uh mystery kinds of stories and that's one of those things that that Braddon actually did early uh, like you mentioned thou art the man um Willard's Weird is another sort of whodunit kind of of uh, story where we're really following, um, you know, following this mystery story. And it's not something that she did after other people did it either, because her one of her earliest, possibly her first novel that was published under her name, The Trail of the Serpent, mm-hmm. uh, which was originally published as something else that I can't, maybe Twice Dead, um, is a detective story where we're following, you know, following a detective and, and discovering along with him who who done it yeah i mean and even her second um major novel aurora floyd which um, i'm tweeting about with the mary elizabeth Braddon association right now very heavily um detective genre oriented Mm -hmm. yeah and there's an element of that um in a lot of her even things that we wouldn't necessarily think of as detective stories i'm thinking of there's there are two short um two short novels um, Flower and Weed and Millie Darrell, uh, both of which are probably around 100, maybe 90 pages long. And they're not necessarily detective stories, um, but there is an element of that to them. You know, Flower and Weed were sort of left in the dark as to the background of, of one of the main characters. And it's sort of this whispered, is she a criminal? Was she a sex worker? Is she out to rob us? Was she just a poor foundling? Uh, and then mm. Millie Daryl, there's sort of a similar, you don't know if one character is trying to poison another one <laughs> or not. Um, and yeah, and, and so it's not straight detective fiction, but there is that sense of, of mystery that I think we're really attracted to in her work. Yes. So um, in this line, then, do you think that Braddon's work has shaped the sort of major popular genres that we have today? Can we trace a legacy or um, a lineage there at all? I, I mean, I might be speaking out of turn here because this isn't something that I've necessarily studied. I know other people have, have sort of worked on it a little bit more. Um, but I see a lot of her, I think I see a legacy for her in ways that we don't really, we wouldn't recognize unless we went looking for them. Um, definitely in mystery and, and detective fiction, you know, anybody who's read Agatha Christie and Dorothy Sayers and some of the other mystery writers from the, the 20s and 30s can see the influence that sensation fiction had on them. Um, you know, one of the things that I've worked on is this sort of alternative heroine that she created um, that I call the the pretty horsebreaker character, which is the, you know, it's the woman that all the men are vying for, but she's not the typical Victorian heroine. She's not the angel in the house. She rides horses. She likes sport. You know, she's typically more masculine. She's not described as beautiful. And that's a character that I've traced through. I mean, we still see that character showing up in um, sort of maybe sort of more romancy genres, but not uh, not the Harlequin romances, but more 
along the lines of the, the sort of Danielle Steele, I guess, kind of romance uh, fiction. Yeah. But I would also say that that's the character that uh, Scarlett O'Hara is, uh, even though she tries to play the feminine character. That's not really that's not really her. Um, in Georgette Hare's novels, you often see this sort of pretty horsebreaker character. Uh, but I also think we don't realize quite what her impact was worldwide uh, because she was one of the most popular authors in the Tauschnitz International series. So her books were exported all over the, you know, all over the globe. Mm-hmm. Um, I cannot remember who I was talking to about this, but I was speaking to someone who was who grew up in India um, like a couple of years ago who said that, that they read Braddon in school because Braddon was wildly popular because it was exported as colonial literature. Wow. You know, I mean, she just had this sort of international reach. Um, you know, Lady Audley's Secret and Aurora Floyd were both optioned for films before 1920. She was just so incredibly popular mm-hmm. uh, and, fa- and her, her far-reaching, uh, with a far-reaching popularity that I think we can't underestimate the influence that she had. Yeah, that's and it's so fascinating to think about. So I like to putter around in thrift store book sections, and I, in Oregon of all places, I find 19th century editions of Braddon's novels constantly. So her her, her reach has been, if anything, underestimated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a quote that I mean, a lot of people know this quote, but uh, you know, she was corresponding with uh, uh, Stevenson. And he told her that Aurora Floyd was the most popular novel in the South Pacific that year. (laughs) So um, can you pick a favorite Braddon work? Or if you had to pick one, what would you what would you pick? Um, I think that's such a tough question. I obviously love the the big ones. Yeah, I love Lady Otley's Secret. I love Aurora Floyd. Um, There are a couple from the 1870s and 1880s that I really love. Mm-hmm. Um, Mount Royal is kind of like the best kind of soap opera and like, like many Braddon novels has a, a tragic death and we don't know if it was, if it was murder or if it was uh, an accident. Asphodel, which is from that same period is a Shakespearean tragedy and she wrote it while she partially while she was uh, visiting Stratford. Uh, so she was sort of influenced there, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think my favorite is Vixen, which is 1878. Um, which a lot of critics call it an anti-sensation novel, so it doesn't necessarily feel like the typical Braddon, like you're sort of waiting for the sensational aspect, um, but it really doesn't, it's not uh, It's not a sensation novel in the sense that nothing untoward happens to the heroine. <laughs> um, she's not embroiled in anything. People sort of try to draw her into uh, situations that could go badly for her, and she always sort of takes the moral high ground. Um, but she's still a very much a Braddon heroine. She's a, a horseback riding, doesn't want to leave home, very sort of issues, fancy society and, and things like that. Um, but yeah, I think that one's my favorite. It also has this strange little, uh, interlude where the heroine gets banished to, um, to Jersey, maybe to one of, one of those islands. And there's this, this very unbraddon uh, depiction of, of sort of wandering around lonely on a on an island I guess maybe that's a little Shakespearean too it feels a little bit like the Tempest but um but yeah it's, it's definitely my favorite very cool I have not yet read Vixen but I will be moving it up the list now I think <laughs> <laughs> it's I think I found it just because it was one of the ones it stayed in print and paperback until um about the 1970s and so it was just easy to find 
Wow. Through, yeah. you know, through libraries. But you can definitely, there's um, there's a good version of it on um, a scan of an 1880s edition um, on Google Books. Oh, good. Yeah, I've found a lot of her stuff. Um, the University of Adelaide's um, eBooks project has mm-hmm. a bunch of valuable editions, too. Yeah. Or a bunch of, yeah. Um, yeah, she was... Um, she was really popular in Australia because her brother was the prime minister of Tasmania. Right. Which is unexpected. Right. Yeah, that was such a surprise when um, uh, when Eleanor and I were going through the biographical episodes. Like, wait, what? She was related to... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so cool. Um, do you have any... So what's your favorite bit of trivia or information about Braddon? Um, I, you know, I want to say because that her brother was the prime minister of Tasmania. Um, I guess the thing that I really liked about her, uh, when I was looking through the collection at, um, the Victorian Women Writers Project, the one in, at, uh, Canterbury, um, in her mm-hmm. diaries that they have there, uh, she really, she loved horses, and I think that, this is my speculation, I think she liked horses more than people in a lot of ways, because she really records her riding experiences uh she talks about the weather conditions she says whether you know the farrier was here whether the horses were in good health uh but she rarely talks about people unless they went riding with her interesting yeah so i think that i mean that was one of the things that i was i guess it it comes out obviously in her work i feel like i've been talking about horses a lot um it it does come out in her work but i was sort of interested i guess and and sort of pleased to see that it was so important to her um you know this is when she was living in Richmond um she rode almost daily in Richmond Park um which is just really close to where her house there was which mm-hmm. now unfortunately is a block of flats that was put up in the 1930s but I think there is a plaque at least indicating where the house was I suspect just based on reading her novels that she's had a similar love for dogs but I haven't done the archival work to back that up but just she she clearly thinks a lot about animals and um yeah mm-hmm yeah, I don't know. I actually have not looked for dogs in her in her diaries. Um, I was specifically kind of interested in horses, and so then I started noticing horses when I was there. Um, but yeah, she definitely has that. Um, I mean, that's that was sort of a trend, sort of post eighteen sixty eighteen seventy anyway. Um, was sort of this newfound love of animals, and you had the vegetarian movements and and you know, the uh, RSPCA, um, can't remember what year it started, but, you know, the Victorians started to appreciate animals very much as pets mm-hmm. and companions, uh, especially dogs. I think, mm, uh, there's a mention of it in Dracula, so I just looked this up, but I don't remember the date, but I'll put it in the show notes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's, it is true, and I was actually reading something a couple months ago about, um, the Victorian pet cemeteries and, um, like, how effusive people are, you know, and headstones and memorials and... Yeah. Um, also just how bizarre Victorian pet name choices were. Mm-hmm. So maybe I'll link to that as well. It's an interesting rabbit hole to go down. Um, yeah, I also, I often wonder how much of that we have to, um thank sort of children's literature for and the anthropomorphizing of animals and teaching children that that animals were were friends instead of game or you know working animals Mm -hmm. yeah yeah especially people like Beatrix Potter 
Mm-hmm. So I think those are all of my major questions. Is there anything that we've missed that you'd like to talk about or? Um, I don't think so. I'm just, I'm so pleased that you're doing this series on Bradden because I love her and I want more people to, uh, to, you know, I just want more people to read her, whether they're academics or not. Um, I was thinking as we've been talking, you asked about the goals of the Bradden Association. And I mean, ultimately, like the lofty goal is that uh, she ought to be as popular as Dickens. She had the same career, you know, she was a writer, she was an editor, she ran journals, um, she wrote more prolifically. um, And Mm -hmm. she did it all while raising 12 children. (laughs) Yes, it is so impressive. (laughs) So I really I think that's one of my, um, uh, my main, you know, if I could have my, my way in the world, it would be to move her up to to Dickens level in people's estimation and uh, popularity now uh, because she was as if not more popular in her time Um, but we just we didn't bring her with us into the 20th century 21st century 20th century yes I either of them I mean she's yeah Yeah. she's just coming back now but that is such an amazing goal and I hope that we can all pitch in to make it happen because she absolutely deserves to be up there with Dickens yeah I think so (laughs) Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Okay, well, that's all we have for you today, listeners. Thanks again to Anna Breck for agreeing to come on and talk to us about Braddon and the Mary Elizabeth Braddon Association. And Eleanor and I will be back soon with another episode. Bye. After the ball, sung by Mr. George J. If you liked what you heard today and want to hear more, head on over to the Victorian Scribblers Patreon page. It's patreon.com slash Victorian Scribblers. That's www.patreon.com slash Victorian Scribblers. There you can find all the latest updates about the podcast, most recent episodes, exclusive content, and links to all of the social media pages. You can also drop me a line at Victorian Scribblers at Outlook.com. I'll look forward to hearing from you. Bye. Music for this podcast, courtesy of MuseOpen, www.museopen.org.